Thank you for listening to Eclipsed Epics. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 13, Yet Another Failed Offensive. Last time we discussed the continued failures of 7th Army and the expulsion of the Soviet Union from the League of Nations, bringing Stalin to order another offensive. By way of Meritskov, a third offensive was ordered against Soma on the western side of the Isthmus for December 17th. Meritskov decided to continue in the way he planned the offensive at Taipoli and the larger invasion itself, which largely was not well. In some areas of this new offensive, the Red Army would not have much, if any, artillery or infantry support to remove anti-personnel and anti-tank traps. But hey, why would you need something that had become a necessity in modern warfare? Or why would you need to remove things that would weaken part of your enemy's entire defense to help your offensive be successful? To start this battle, there was five hours of a preparatory artillery barrage in limited areas and an aerial bombardment from about 200 planes. After that, the Soviets in limited areas would have engineers try to weaken the lines. And even in their limited capacity, the engineers facilitated a breakthrough that would have been a breakthrough at almost any other time in history. Tanks poured through the hole created by the engineers, but the Finnish infantry stood and fought the tanks. The Soviet infantry, on the other hand, did not reach the hole to support the tanks. So the tank crews either decided they wanted to retreat or they halted in place and tried to hold the ground that they gained. The lack of coordination of arms was still a major hindrance to the Red Army, which was confirmed by the 50th Rifle Corps' commander. Although ultimately unsuccessful, the Soviets would continue the attack against many places in the Soma sector, including Soma itself, through December 20th. Then the impetus collapsed, and the third offensive failed. Marizkov blamed it on the weather and gave credit to the awesome resilience of the defenders of Finland. Both things were true, but like that friend who can't seem to get their life together, Marizkov focused on the things he couldn't control rather than the things that he could control and could have for some time now. Regardless, the Supreme Soviet Command, Reid Stalin, still ordered yet another offensive on the Isthmus. It also ordered Marizkov to plan this one too. This time, the Red Army was to attack Voivorg on December 22nd. According to Coral Van Dyke, the planning of this offensive was more extensive than the last. This time, the Red Army was tasked with destroying Finland's strategic reserves. There was to be more artillery preparation to soften up the Mennerheim line. Day and night patrols were planned for reconnaissance and engineering groups amongst others. But the Finns slew-footed Meritskov and launched their own offensive. Both Van Dyke and Trotter used words like bold, ambitious, audacious when talking about this plan. Either Hugo Osterman, Army of the Karelian Isthmus Commander, or Harold Oquist, two corps commander, conceived this counteroffensive based on German tactics most likely learned as a Jaeger. Regardless of who planned it, this plan was drawn up as early as December 11th, bolstered by stopping the Red Army combined with testimony from POWs and deserters. They strongly suggested the Red Army had a morale problem. This was sent to Mannerheim, who rejected it for being too soon. 
So a week and a half later, when the Soviets were struggling with one of their offensives, the plan was put to Mannerheim again. This time, it was approved on December 22nd for implementation just 18 hours later. Trotter makes the argument that this was too late. He says the optimal time for this offensive was December 19th to December 20th, the end of the peak of the Salmo offensive. Trotter does acknowledge that units needed for this counteroffensive were still repelling Soviets at Salma, though. Regardless, the Finnish plan looked very enticing on paper. It was planned that the Finnish army would pull off a double pincer, which is exactly how it sounds. Imagine pinching someone, and the skin that you're pinching is caught in a double pincer. But however enticing this looked on the map, William Trotter calls it utopian. He says, quote, Vast in scope, but diffuse in concentration, and so complex that even an experienced field army would have been challenged to pull it off. End quote. The material needed for Finland to get a whiff of pulling this off was not available. Finland was mainly suffering from deficiencies in armor and artillery. In short, Trotter finishes by saying that the only reason this counteroffensive was not a total debacle was Soviet incompetence. This Finnish counteroffensive failed, but that Soviet incompetence was launching that planned fourth invasion on the Karelian Isthmus against Vyborg. In this offensive, the Soviets established yet another bridgehead, but like at Kukiami, any impetus was lost due to the retreat from heavy artillery, mortar, and gunfire. By December 28th, four weeks after the beginning of hostilities and two weeks after many Soviet strategists predicted Finland's capitulation, the fourth Soviet offensive on the Karelian Isthmus was called off. In this offensive, it was estimated that around another 2,000 Red Army troops died. It was also this same day that Vershilov, the Soviet Defense Commissariat, issued a directive ordering the armies of the Leningrad Military District to begin operating on the defensive. It was not only the continued failures of 7th Army on the Isthmus or 8th Army north of Lake Ladoga. No, as this directive was being issued by Vershilov, a whole rifle division of 9th Army was being divided and decimated. But to discuss the most famous victory of the Finns during this war at Sosiami, we need to rewind back to early December and move our focus from the Isthmus to where the North Finland group was operating. Soviet 9th Army was charged with steamrolling the North Finland group and cutting Finland in half. This looked good on paper, but stood little chance of success. At Sosiami, a numerically inferior German-trained force was going to encircle and destroy the numerically superior Russian forces. This is why William Trotter calls this battle a Tannenberg in miniature, and why we discussed the Battle of Tannenberg in episode 2.02, that damn foolish event. There are many reasons the Soviets will lose outright here, despite superiority in anything that was tangible. But the main reason was more intangible. While superior manpower, materiel, armor, etc. will win you a war eventually, just ask the Anton about that one, you risk squandering many of those same advantages in the short term, especially by only depending on them, while ignoring other battlefield force multipliers like proper training, competent commanders, and a plan well suited for your success. And speaking of poor planning, 
This is where one of the rifle divisions was issued manuals to use skis. Given the, quote, vast track of virgin forest that protected the developed areas of Finland, end quote. Unfortunately for the 44th Motorized Rifle Division, it was not supplied with skis. Doubly unfortunate for the invaders, the defenders did have skis, and they knew how to use them, and they knew how to use the terrain to their advantage. William Trotter summarizes this approach brilliantly. Yet the Finns' relationship to winter is more symbiotic than antagonistic. Every percentile of economic growth, every pound of grain, every foot of paved highway, every new rural electrification line represented a hard-won victory. A small symbol of progress rested from the unyielding flint of the landscape. End quote. You cannot help but contrast this approach, something you would not be wrong in calling the Finnish way of war, if you will, with the Soviet wide-front, all-or-nothing approach. And in contrasting these two approaches, you see things are not going well for the Soviets. Although Finland was not having the best of times, its reality-to-expectation ratio, which is the true key to happiness, seems much higher than the Soviet one. Along with the 44th Motorized Rifle Division, the other Soviet division that fought at the Battle of Sosiami was the 163rd Rifle Division. This division started off quite well. Two of its regiments were sent across the Finnish border at the beginning of the invasion, catching the Finns by total surprise. Because why would you send two regiments across the border on the Jisrantha Road if you knew anything about Finland? or the tactical realities of its terrain north of Lake Ladoga. Regardless, these Red Army regiments made it to a railroad junction about 10 miles north of Sosiami called Palavera, the night of December 5th, December 6th. At the same time, the 3rd Regiment made it to the village of Sosiami via the right road, the direct road to that village running roughly southeast to northwest. The defense of that road was weak sauce. On the 7th, the citizens of Sosiami had cleared out and raised most of its buildings to the ground, so when the Soviets got there, they found nothing. Also on the 7th, one of those regiments up north at Palovera linked up with the one already at Sosiami. Lest you think that weak sauce defense that Finland mustered here is the only defense they have, don't worry, reinforcement did come. First, it came in the form of small stopgaps to try to stem the red tide. And then it came in the form of the Great Finnish Reorganization. North of Palavera, all fighting Finns would now be known as Group Susi, much like the groups fighting from Talva Harvey to Alamansi were known as Group Tovela. Under Pavu Susi Tanino, William Trotter points out the Finns were able to contain that one regiment up north with ease for two reasons. First, the Soviet commander took a battalion in that regiment away for reserves, reducing its operational ability. Second, the Finns were clued in on just how unprepared the Soviets were through open-air, uncoded communications. And as we have discussed ad nauseum, the Soviets lacked boots, snowsuits, and sufficient rations. The Soviet soldiers were even fragging their own officers, which is basically killing an officer by chucking a grenade in his tent. 
We typically hear of fragging when we talk about the Vietnam experience after the failed Tet Offensive of 1968. After repelling North Vietnam's onslaught, the morale of the American people and the military toward Vietnam really began to spiral downward toward the fall of Saigon. At this stage of the war, it was not uncommon to hear of soldiers fragging their officers for being too strict or gung-ho about getting after the enemy, especially when the soldiers no longer deemed this war a war to die for. Compare that with the Red Army grunt invading Finland in 1939-1940, and it seems almost like a righteous act to frag an officer, even that if that animosity was misplaced. All grenades should have been delivered to Surreal Mariskov, master architect of his marching band to not just nowhere, but to many men's oblivion. And if you wanted to go further, the buck in this communist dictatorship stopped with Joseph Stalin. Anyway, I say all that to say that offensive operations north of Paluvero were stopped cold by Task Force Susi. South of Paluvero, those two regiments of 163rd Division were dancing on the embers of Sosiami. In response, Mannerheim sent the last of his reserves, a regiment designated JR-27, which is a number that held a special significance for Finland. Another veteran of the 27th Jaegers, named Silavo, was at the head of this intrinsically significant regiment. His work was cut out for him. No heavy weapons, not even anti-tank guns, were available for the troops of JR-27. This lack of supplies did not just apply to weapons, though. They did not have the necessary supply of essentials, like tents. But what they did have were skis, and the knowledge of the terrain. The Red Army would find this out the hard way on December 9th, when advancing on part of a railroad track its intelligence didn't know about. In addition to the surprise of more tracks where tracks should not have been, the Red Army was greeted by Finnish fire. This was just the start of the problems of the 163rd Division. Within a day, Sialavo moved to cut the rate road to completely isolate those two regiments of the 163rd. December 12th marked the first day of many operations to cut that road leading directly to Sosiami. The operations followed a specific set of rules. The assigned team would meet just beyond the Red Army's vision based on that team's intelligence. The team would also identify the Red Army's weakest points. And as it would make its final approach, the team would get rid of anything but light snow sheets and all the firepower they could carry. This was done for two reasons. First, to not exhaust the men before combat. Second, shock and speed were keys to success, according to Trotter, against the lumbering behemoth that was the Soviets. The goal of this approach was to divide and conquer the mass of the Red Army on the right road, rather than killing every single Soviet on that road immediately. This tactic was also referred to as multi, derived from the word timber. Basically, the concept was cutting the miles-long timber of the Soviet columns drawn out on Finnish roads to sizable logs in order to destroy them. This concept was the most heralded concept of the war. But William R. Trotter is here to throw a wet blanket on all the smoke generated by fawning over multis. He says, while being, quote, a dramatic tactical success, end quote, 
Mochi Tactics, quote, were more often than not a strategic failure, end quote. Charter explains further by laying out two main reasons the Mote concept was a strategic failure. These reasons were time and manpower. Remember, the Finns are operating on a restricted time window to pull this thing off. And by pull this thing off, I mean bloody the Soviets enough to get them back to the negotiating table. The thing that restricted Finland's time was its materiel. You will recall that Finland had enough for about two months of fighting, with some more trickling in through the Swedish border. With respect to manpower, I need only to put forth Mannerheim's miserliness in doling out his reserves into the last possible second. Remember, we just talked about him using his last reserves to, to form this JR-27, right? So we're, we're hitting the bottom of that manpower barrel here. Trotter elucidates further by saying that none of these motis ever contained a division even though we're about to describe one destroying two-thirds of the 163rd. He also says the cutting to size part of the program was a strategic hindrance to the Finns because the Soviets were to-the-last-man type defenders, regardless of whatever resentment the average Red Army soldier felt toward officers and the commanding apparatus as a whole. And next time, we will cover the Soviet 163rd fighting to that last man, in addition to the 44th Motorized Rifle Division, trying to help and failing to do so.